Welcome to Locally Sourced Joey. And today's guest, this is going to sound cliche, but he puts the most interesting man in the world to shame because sure, Dos spokesperson is going out and doing some fun things. Adam's doing, I, I personally think, more exciting things. And he's coming back to tell a story about it. He's surviving these things and coming back with the story. Just a quick, quick little run through of some of the things he's done. He's dived for pirate treasure in the Caribbean hunted for poachers in Africa, played poker with cartel kingpins in Juarez, scouted for UFOs in the Sonora Desert, raced in the Baja 1000 in the Gumball Rally, he swam with great white sharks, and there wasn't a cage, which I, even swimming in a cage for me just sounds bad enough, let alone in the, the great abyss of the ocean with sharks all over the place. He's jumped out of a plane, no parachute, and uh, taking part in Sasquatch safaris, which sounds like uh, my next theme party, Chupacabra expeditions, and a ton of other different things around the world. On this episode, there are many, many stories about Adam's life, stories he's covered, his recently published novel, The Death Dealer, which I, after recording, got some exciting news that he has signed a shopping agreement for it. So that's super awesome. Congrats, Adam. And... Many, many other tales from Hollywood, uh, including a very funny one with Quentin Tarantino, a uh, equally funny, if not a little more gross, <laughs> with Steven Seagal, and Adam will share why he really, truly despises Tobey Maguire. Let's hop on in. How did you get into writing in the first place? Because I feel like you've done so many, both, it sounds like chill and interesting things. Um, so, so how did it all get started? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. My origin story, so to speak, is I think a lot like a lot of other writers in that I didn't think I was qualified, quote unquote, to do anything else. I, I wasn't the corporate type. I was even though I was raised in a resort hotel. So if you saw the movie Dirty Dancing, you kind of have an idea of how I grew up, so to speak. Uh, it was a big thousand acre, four seasons resort, and. As a kid, I was being groomed to take over the business, and I hated it. It just wasn't for me. I, I get along with everybody, although I'm, I'm not a people person. I'm, I'm the kind of person who just doesn't play well with others, even though I'm, I like to be friendly. I like to be cordial. I just think I'm better left alone. So as I was you know, getting older and growing up from junior year in high school and stuff, I, I realized I wanted no part of the hotel industry, and I was always fascinated by stories. Um, I read everything as a kid, uh, classics early on, and then, you know, everything that was commercial at that point. I, I gravitated towards the more commercial stories, stuff that I thought either would make a great movie or that did make a great movie. And this was even back in the, in the seventies and the eighties. I mean, I'm 49 now, so dating myself. So, um, as I, you know, my senior year of high school rolled around, I really, I was in love with writing. I loved the element of it, even though I got a zero in writing for college. True story. Oh, wow. Um, because I thought the, the instructor's term paper uh, and what she wanted rather than just the traditional, you know, let your students write, she, she wanted to make it about herself, kind of like referees in a football game today. They think they're about the, they're the story when it's the players. So she made it about her, and I refused to do it, and she gave me a zero, and she said I'd never uh, amass anything in writing. So I think when my first book was published, I sent her an autographed copy, and when I optioned like 10 of my articles or five of my articles, I sent, I, I mean, I was a real prick. I sent some, <laughs> some like, cake and something like that. I don't remember what it was. Um, but anyway, so I realized I wasn't really qualified 
to do the nine to five corporate thing. Um, I spent the semester at Cornell and I wound up teaching the class on hotel management. And that was the ceiling for me. I realized that I'm just not, I'm not cut out for this. I'm, I, I need to pursue writing and go with it. So uh, I did the typical, you know, look anywhere for a literary job. I tried all the newspapers. I couldn't get you know, I couldn't get my feet wet at all. I had a degree in creative writing ultimately when I graduated college, which means absolutely nothing. I would have literally been better off having a degree in underwater basket weaving, <laughs> and I probably would have been employed quicker. Uh, that is a true story. Um, it's the same as, you know, degree in creative writing is great. You can get on a subway if you have a token. Same thing. Um, so I, I just literally went out to everyone and everyone looking for uh, you know, hey, do you need a story on this, story on that? And I just started pitching all the um, all the magazines I could think of. Print was big back then. Um, every publication. And the publications that responded to some of my crazier pitches were all the men's lifestyle publications. Maxim was becoming super hot. I was really just ramping up. Uh, there was, what was it, uh, Men's Journal, um, Outside. So they were willing to take me on if I did it on spec. So no money up front. They just, if they like my story, great. Uh, I did one piece for Maxim. Uh, I did an underwater poker tournament uh, on scuba with sharks swimming around overhead, and they sent a photographer, and that was it. After that, it was it was pretty much, um, you know, the joke among editors at the men's lifestyle magazines, especially Maxim uh, stuff I'll get into in a minute, but Playboy, Penthouse. I wrote for Hustler, uh, Players, which was a really cheesy porn mag that was trying to do cool articles, uh, the joke among the editors were if they had a story idea that could get a journalist maimed or killed, send Adam. Um, that was the joke. And somehow, you know, I don't know, by the grace of God, a lot of luck, more stupidity than I know what to do and kind of false bravado, I was able to get through stories and not get killed or maimed, but actually write the story. Like when they wanted somebody to get, you know, beat up by a cage fighter, that was me. Um, I entered the world sniper competition. I have a kind of a weird background with weaponry. I'm a pretty good shooter, uh, so I was able to hold my own with that. I didn't win it, obviously, but I placed a lot higher than a lot of um, than a lot of military guys. Uh, let's see. I was the first journalist that I know of to actually get waterboarded for a story. Um, that was pretty cool. Jumped out of a plane without a parachute, but like an idiot, I did it for 2500 bucks. <laughs> Travis Pastrana, 10 years later, would do it for Red Bull for a quarter mil. So um, intelligence clearly is not in my gene pool. You were just setting the, setting the then, stage uh, for Travis to do it. Yeah, that's yeah. that kind of thing. And then yeah. the big, one of my bigger stories was um, Keith Blanchard was the editor of Maxim at the time, and he knew I had, a, I had a very strange Rolodex, kind of one of the perks to growing up um, like I did in the Catskills, I kind of had like the, even though I was not a richy rich type person, my family knew a lot of people and I got to know a lot of people and a lot of the dregs people, you know, high people in low places, low people in high places, that kind of thing. Um, and Keith Blanchard called me. He said, Adam, we're looking to do a really cool cover story. You don't happen to know any mercenaries, do you? And at that time, Soldier of Fortune had just come under fire for, the classified section in the back of their magazine where ex-military guys or wannabe bounty hunters, people of that nature, were advertising their services and little classified ads. And if it said, we'll do red work or we'll do wet work, that meant that, you know, that was the version of the dark web. They were willing to kill somebody or kidnap somebody or do whatever for money. 
So as it turned out, I did know a Merck. I knew a guy by the name of Jonathan Keith Idema, although he was never named in the story, who is a very interesting individual. And if people want to look him up, there has been a ton of things written about him. There's a fantastic YouTube documentary um, when he was at Pulacharki Prison, and he had a literally an open-door policy of a 10-year sentence. He only served three years. He was pardoned by Karzai himself and refused to leave because he thought the CIA was going to kill him. And then in 2012, he did die, and a lot of people think it was by the CIA hands, although there's some weird stuff there. But uh, anyway, I knew J.K. very well. He was the guy who taught me to shoot. When I was a kid, going back to 12 and 13, my family at the hotel, we were very friendly with all the law enforcement agencies. Um, my hotel, my family's hotel was called the Nevely, the Nevely Country Club. And they would give great donations to the police departments every year and the different state departments. I think one year they bought all the officers, new, they needed new bulletproof vests. My family and some of the other hotels um, ponied up for that. So we, we knew everybody. We knew the law enforcement community really well. Well, a tip came in from a different arrest that either myself or one of my cousins was going to be abducted uh, for a ransom plot. And then one of them, one of either one of my younger siblings or uh, one of the other cousins was going to be killed to show that they meant business. So it was a real crazy thing, and obviously my family um, freaked out, understandably. So my folks, through my father's brother, knew this guy named Jonathan Keith Idema who owned Adventure World Sports in Poughkeepsie, New York. And Adventure World was the only Class Three firearms dealership in New York. That mean Class Three meant he could sell full auto and silencers. And this is back in the... Um, in the late 80s, so or the mid 80s at the time. So at a time, this is before the, the uh, assault rifle ban and all that stuff. This was, you know, some crazy things happened. Anyway, Idema fancied himself as he was an ex-Green Beret. He was really kind of a man of adventure, you know, the most dangerous man in the world kind of thing. And at the time, we didn't really know his true story. Uh, and I would come to learn it over the, over time. But my folks hired him to teach me self-defense and teach me how to shoot so that, God forbid, I was ever in a situation, you know, I could be a, at least a, a savior to myself if I'm, if I'm alone. And from the time of when I was 13 on, I had access to a rather large assortment of weapons. Um, I didn't start carrying until I was 18. I, you know, I had guns, and I was, and I learned to be proficient with them. So he became like my dark arts Yoda of things. I mean, anything you could possibly want to learn that was related to combat or tactical or CQB, which is close quarters battle, anything before the term was um, in the modern landscape, uh, he was the guy. And here I am, you know, a 12, 13-year-old kid. I was like, holy shit, this guy's amazing. You know, all the stuff he knows. I was, he was right up there with God as far as I was concerned. Um, and then years later, when Blanchard had asked me, you know, hey, Adam, do you know a Merc? I said, I, as a matter of fact, I do. He said, well, you know, what kind of stuff does he do? I said, well, what do you want? You know, this guy's done everything. He said, any chance he hunts people? I said, even better. He was doing real-life most dangerous game stuff. He was taking wealthy big-game hunters, some from America, mostly from Europe, to hot zones to hunt people that could shoot back. And in Africa at the time, the dark continent was the best place to do it because poachers, even though there's morality issues and I can, you know, we can hash that out, um, how the West looks at, you know, a, a cute fuzzy giraffe or a gazelle or an elephant and 
to a poacher, you know, whether they're just trying to put food on the table for their family or they're looking to saw off the tusk or the rhino horns and sell them to some Asian apothecary, they look at an animal differently than we might. Although some people say, well, we treat cattle the same way or chickens or whatever. But uh, he was doing real-life most dangerous game-type hunts, human safaris, where they would go out and they would hunt poachers, and the game wardens over there, they were so overrun and the laws are different over there and the way money changes hands or, you know, under a table, so to speak, they would just assume deal with something in the field. And to this day, if you ever go on like a photo safari or even a hunting safari, if your professional hunter or your guide um, encounters poachers out on safari, even if you're paying $25,000 a day or you have a $200,000 tented safari, they can put the safari on hold and go and what's called sort out the problem. And usually that means shooting them and leaving them to rot. So I joined JK and a couple other people. We flew on a C-130. Um, we did not go through normal customs. I was not flying uh, through commercial channels. He had done that numerous times. Uh, we disembarked in a specific area of Africa, and I spent 30, it was, what was it, 32 days in country in a couple different scenarios, and we hunted poachers. And I wrote about that, and that became, uh, they called it Club Dead on the cover, and the article was called The Death Dealer in Maxim, and that... Uh, that went through the roof, and everybody in Hollywood wanted to buy the rights. I took meetings with Oliver Stone and Chris McQuarrie and all these people, and they were all, you know, these were my bucket list people to meet, and I was kid in a candy store. I was new to Hollywood in the in the late 90s when the article came out in 98. Um, I had no clue what I was getting into, and I was, you know, super enamored by everybody. I was like, oh, my God, these guys are, you know, I'm, these are my literary heroes. And uh, here I was meeting them, and everybody's, you know, they're throwing numbers around. And, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We want to make this. And then Idema, who I did not know was having his own little war with Hollywood, and I can get into that if you're interested, um, said, Adam, you cannot entertain any offers that come your way for the story. You still own the rights, and that's it. And, and this is a guy I was friendly with. He said, if you do, I'll kill you. <laughs> so when a Merc, who I have seen do some pretty crazy things with my own two eyes, says, you are not doing this or I'll kill you, you pretty much listen to him. Yeah, that's and good. That that's that. a good, that's, good uh, advice, yeah. That's kind of how it started. And then from there, that article came out, and I was doing tons of stuff for Maxim. I was writing. I had sometimes two and three articles in the same issue under a different name and um, writing for a number of publications, uh, usually high-octane stuff, crazy things, sometimes stupid, you know, bar fight survival. I did how to, how to survive, uh, survive your term of incarceration. I got some really funny fan mail from that. Um, what I did not know at the time, what I learned, Maxim was the number one magazine in all um, Maxim security prisons because porn mags, you know, Playboy, Penthouse, everything was not allowed in any prison. But Maxim, which was considered a regular magazine, was great. So you had, you know, thousands of inmates flooding with uh, with fan mail. It's pretty funny. Oh, wow. You know? What what was uh, one of the more memorable pieces of fan mail? Well, one guy said he was, I mean, I'm shocked that he wrote this, but then again, considering where it was coming from, and I think he was, if I recall it correctly, it's 20 years, so um, bear with me. I'm pretty sure it came, it was the one from Eastern Correctional, and Eastern Correctional, interestingly enough, was in just outside of Kerhonkson, which was 30 minutes where I was from, even though I was in L.A. at the time. But Eastern Correctional is a supermax prison, and I got an a letter 
the guy was getting ready to do some business, um, and he was gearing up, and he thought my article on how to turn a toothbrush, or the segment of the article, how to turn a toothbrush and a soap into a knife that could be, you know, gotten rid of pretty easily was great, and he planned on using that and thank <laughs> him, and, you know, if he stayed alive, I should come visit him, and we could, what did he say, share some kind of bar in the commissary with some kind of weird chocolate bar. I don't remember the name. But that was that was pretty funky that he was writing a letter in advance of going to be... Um, I thought that was pretty wild. Um, there was another one... Uh, I had two marriage proposals, which I was flattered by, but, uh, yeah, I, I was already engaged at the time, so uh, that wouldn't be good, and they were from men anyway, so, hey, whatever you're into, but uh, <laughs> uh, I thought that was kind of cool, uh, kind of funny. Um, let's see what else. Uh, something, I, I got some that I didn't know what I was talking about. Some guy said that's the best way to smuggle a heroin capsule or, is, or a balloon you know, you put it in a certain area of your rectum and you don't have to worry about it breaking in your stomach. And I and I checked my article. I, I never really got into smuggling. I just meant one thing about uh, the lube you should use. And I think I said like sardine oil or something like that because it, it doesn't affect you internally. And I got that from an inmate that I read. But again, there was there was so many just bizarre things. And then some were just ramblings of, you know, oh, I got screwed by my lawyer and I should be out. And then there were just some strange just some strange letters that I would put in the, uh, I don't know, in the category of somebody who deserved to be in prison. <laughs> so, you know, it's a good thing they were incarcerated, so. Yeah, I can only imagine there's probably, uh, especially when you know you're in there for a while, I feel like your your censor is pretty minimal. Yeah, that's, I'm pretty sure the one that the guy was talking about with the soap and the toothpaste, I think he was serving two or three life sentences concurrently. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, he was, you know, I, I guess he figured he was going to be in there for 140 years. He didn't care what he said or what he did. Um, so, but legally they still have to deliver their letters. Um, and I think they're really only concerned about the ones that are going, I don't, I don't know that they can legally read the outbound ones. Although I could swear some of them look like they'd been like steamed open and refilled <laughs> or something. But uh, again, I don't, I never looked into the legalities of that. So I assume you went and, and met this guy eventually. Yeah. I did not. <laughs> no, I think that's I, a, I think so, that's the wise you know, choice. Yeah. Maybe he's still there. Maybe not. Maybe I should go through. I'm I'm pretty sure I still have the letter. I I kept too many things. I've got a pack rat of weird fan mail, and um, I, and I've got a great Quentin Tarantino story I could tell you, and your listeners might enjoy that. Absolutely. Um, and I I definitely have that. When I first moved to L.A., I was absolutely 100% clueless about the industry. And that's something that. Uh, writers can learn over the years is, you know, don't believe and don't drink your own Kool-Aid kind of thing. Don't believe your own hype. Learn, learn when you're not commercial. Um, but I, I had no clue how to sell a script or even get an agent or anything, but uh, I was a fan kind of in a weird way of Tarantino. I'm not a big fan of his. I'm a fan, I think he's a brilliant, brilliant writer, brilliant director. I'm not a fan of his as a person, whatever, but he's done some amazing shit. And then some stuff, I've read some of his scripts and be like, okay, that's a little odd and 400 pages worth. But <laughs> I was convinced that I had the next big mafia script, the badass thing, which was called Honor Thy Family at the time. Uh, and I, I was certain that if Quentin Tarantino read it, he would absolutely drop everything to direct it and it would be a smash success. So I was like, okay, how the hell do I get this script to Quentin? Well, I had heard through the grapevine that he was a huge collector of board games. 
but old, obscure games, not like Monopoly or Clue or Sorry, but like strange games that were made for shows. Apparently there was a, a board game done in a limited run for Platoon. Uh, there were some really weird ones. But there was a show back when I was a kid called Space 1999, and maybe some of your older listeners will remember it. And I, I thought it was pretty cool. It was ahead of its time, cool sci-fi. They even had toys and stuff. Well, they did a Space 1999 board game. So my first month in L.A., here I am with this script. I go to the Rose Bowl every once a month in Pasadena, the Rose Bowl non-football season. They do this enormous, um, like a uh, garage sale, yard sale kind of thing, flea market. It's the most insane thing. Anything you want short of a nuclear missile, and I'm betting somebody still has one of those somewhere, you could find it there. Everything from, and you'd see regular people and celebrities. I mean, this thing was packed. You could not see it in a day, and they had everything and then some. So I found this Space 1999 board game. I was able to haggle it down and get it for 18 bucks, which I didn't know if that was good or bad, but I'm like, wait a minute. This is going to be a gift for Quentin. I'd spend twice that. I'd spend 100 times that. So I buy this board game. I take my script. I write, you know, this clever, what I thought was this clever little letter. I tuck it under the cardboard cutout where the pieces go and everything inside the game, gift wrap it, put a bow on it, and his company, his production company at the time was a band apart. So I drove to the production company and double park outside really quick and bring it into his assistant and drop it off and say this is for Quentin. So this wasn't in the day when bomb scares were a problem and, you know, they didn't do suspicious packages. So three weeks go by uh, and I get in a letter, uh, again, this is really pre-internet stuff, with the return address with the letters QT. It's all it said in the corner. I'm like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> he actually responded. This is amazing. I open up the envelope, and it's the cover page of my script, because this was in the day before you even sent PDFs or files of the script. You actually had to print out everything and three-hole punch paper and the brads and all that stuff. So it's the cover page of my script, ripped out, and it says, Adam, this script sucks cock. Get a new career. <laughs> QT. So I, that's framed and it was on my wall for the longest time and I still have it. Um, but I'm, I didn't know whether it'd be like, oh my God, he wrote me back or just mortified that he would, you know, here's this guy who's this brilliant writer, director, all this stuff, and he thinks my work is dog shit. Um, but I laugh about it now because, you know, I've come to know what he's like or what it is. But the sad thing is he was right. <laughs> that script was terrible. Did he... concept, horrible execution. I think the first sentence was good, and the other 99 pages were absolutely dog shit. <laughs> Did he keep the board game? I'm sorry? Did he keep the board game? Oh, he didn't send the board game back. Oh. Yeah, so I'm guessing it's part of his collection. So if anybody if anybody ever breaks into Quentin Tarantino's house and they find this collection of board games, if you happen to see the Space 1999 board game there, take it, leave him $18, and bring that back to me so I could say I, I got it back. So that would be my revenge. But I am not advocating anybody break into Quentin Tarantino's home. So I just want to make that clear. You're playing the long game. I like it. <laughs> you never know. Well, I think that I think that segues nicely into you do have a lot of Hollywood experience as well. Um, and do you ha is that your top story? Do you have other adventures, uh, other tips, advice, life lessons? Oh my God, I, I could stories slash life lessons. Yeah, I mean, I actually had a I had a very good meeting today with a guy by the name of Aaron Magnani. Um, he's got a number of uh, projects in development, sold a few, just is doing something with Lee Daniels. 
and he took a liking to my script, The School, which was uh, a top 10 finalist in a recent um, a pretty well-accorded competition. So that's cool. Um, so I'm pleased with that. But yeah, Hollywood stories. I mean, I, I could tell you some really funny things. I had a, I, I mean, this is both sad and, and funny and tragic. Um, I had a manager by the name of Kathy Muraviev, um, wonderful uh, older lady, wonderful woman, started as a script reader for, I think she was a script reader for Paramount, became, hung on a shingle and became a manager. And she loved my work. I thought she was great. She was a real hustler. Um, she's still around. I think she still has one or two clients. I, I haven't talked to her in well over a year, though. But uh, great woman. I have nothing but great things to say about her. So she calls me up on a Sunday morning. Uh, this was, I think it was like 9, 9.30. And to get a call from anybody in the industry on a Saturday or especially Sunday is like, it's unheard of. It just doesn't happen. But Kathy and I were friends anyway. She calls me up. She says, Adam, what are you doing right now? And I think I was like sitting in my underwear with my dog on my lap and, you know, watching Sports Center, drinking coffee, <laughs> talking to my wife or some weird thing like that. It's a typical Sunday. Um, and she said, okay, you need to be at Aaron Copelson's house in an hour and a half. Okay. I'm going to meet you there. Now, for those who don't know, Aaron Copelson is a huge movie producer from back in the day. He's done, I don't even know where to start. You can look him up. He's done everything done 100 films, and he was on my bucket list. Now, the guy's in his late 70s now, or early 80s, but apparently he took a liking to a pilot script that I wrote, and he was sitting on the board of CBS at the time, and I was like, oh, okay. So, wanted to go, the fact that he wants to meet me at his house on a Sunday with his lawyer present, with my manager there, that's Again, that just doesn't happen. So either this was a hilarious prank that one of my friends had roped Kathy in on, and they were pulling to me, and I was going to show up somewhere, and they were just going to, you know, totally make me feel like an idiot. Um, or this was the real deal, and something very special was going to happen. I'm like, okay, cool. So I mean, I said, okay, cool, trying to sound casual. Meanwhile, I'm, <laughs> you know, like the duck on the water kind of thing. The duck looks fine, and the legs are going a mile a minute. So I'm racing, I'm like, you know, showering, coffee, the whole thing while I'm getting dressed. Next thing you know, I'm dressed, I'm ready. There's no traffic on a Sunday, which is awesome. And I meet Kathy at his home in Beverly Hills. Uh, he's got a crazy gated little mini estate kind of thing where he's set up is sick, I won't even ask. Uh, we're ushered in, we go in, and I'm shown into this foyer and then into this massive living room with surrounded by, I, I'm not an... Um, I don't know fine art, although I can understand, you know, Picassos and Monets and stuff like that. He's got everything. I mean, he's, he's a multimillionaire and he's done very well. So next thing I know, here comes Arnold Copelson in a bathrobe with his hair askew and his lawyers there and three assistants and all that and things are going, whatever. Adam, I, I love your script. It was amazing. And he turns to his sister and goes, wait, what was his script again? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Is, this is kind of interesting. Um, he says, oh, yeah, it was Black Site 19. Yeah, that's it, Black Site 19. Okay, great. And I'm like, oh, okay, good, because I honestly didn't even know what Kathy was talking about. I didn't know what he had read. I wasn't sure, because she had sent out a few different things, and Hollywood, even though it's big, it's a small community. Everything gets around to everybody sooner or later, and people laugh at it, or they are like sheep, and they wait for somebody else to step up, or if there's something they really like, they do a preemptive strike, and they make a big offer. So... He loved it. He's great. He said, Adam, I want to take this. I want to take this out. I want to make this. I, I think this is a great series. It's great. Even though he didn't know the name of it 30 seconds prior. I'm like, okay. I'm like, uh, yeah, what do you want to do? How do you want to do this? Um, I look at my manager like, you know, and 
it's like, is, is there an offer? I mean, how are we doing this? And he says, well, first of all, there's, there's no money. I only do handshake deals. And I'm like, well, this kind of sucks. I'm like, you know, a handshake deal. I'm like, well, it's still Arnold Copelson. I'm like, so, I mean, you know, I would have cleaned the guy's shoes if he asked me <laughs> to. But he said, okay, handshake deal. So I do the notorious handshake deal with Arnold Copelson. It's great. My manager gets this contract. Okay, it's thick and, you know, triplicate this and dot and sign here. And you're giving away this, but you'll get this. And if this goes, the long story short, if, if the show is produced and they made an episode, I do fine. It's great. TV is wonderful. If you're a writer in Hollywood and you sell a TV show, you're going to do very well. And chances are, even if it tanks, you're going to get enough recognition that you'll be able to pitch anybody. It's not that easy to do. Um, there was no money up front, but it was great. So we go through. I have my entertainment attorney go back and forth, and there's red lines and all this stuff. And that, you know, lawyers, if there are any lawyers listening, I love you, but I hate you. Okay. Um, <laughs> You guys killed more deals in Hollywood than anywhere, but I know you protect us too, so I'll just put that out there. And Veronica, if you're listening, I'm sorry, you're amazing. Um, my longtime entertainment attorney is Veronica Diarla. I love her, but ugh, I hate attorneys. But anyway, um, so we finally get this thing done. We get the contract done. Two months signed, it's done. So three months goes by, another three months goes by, another three months goes by. I get a call from a new assistant who I didn't know. Adam, a uh, slight problem. Um, Arnold's having some issues with your script. I'm like, hey, he's Arnold Copelson. Whatever changes he wants, I'm going to nod my head. Whatever he needs me to do, if he wants to take this, I, you know, I'm already divorced from the thing. This wasn't my life's work. I wasn't that beholden to it. Deal is a deal is a deal. At some point, you just have to take one and know that everybody out there wants to change your work. And I can talk to you about that in a second about the lessons. Um, but I was ready to just nod and say whatever. And I said, so what does he want changed? He said, well, that's the problem. Um, he, he doesn't really remember it. And I was like, he doesn't remember it? He's like, no, he doesn't remember. I was like, okay, does he just need a refresher? I mean, did he lose a draft? I'll email over another draft. He goes, no, he, he's really not remembering a lot of what he read a couple months ago. And, and I, you know, I'm not trying to disparage Arnold Copelson. He's amazing. But he was having some apparently issues with different things. And long story short, that deal fell apart. And to this day, Arnold Copelson, according to the other assistant, swears he never read my script and he wouldn't be interested in taking a sci-fi um, sci-fi drama thriller to network anyway. So uh, that went nowhere. That was lovely. <laughs> that was a year of taking a script off the market. So my advice to writers, um, one, handshake deals are scary. Because unless your producer really has skin in the game, regardless of what he is, you, you've got nothing and they've got everything. And they can collect 20, 30, 40, 50 projects. So try to get something if you're ever offered an option. Um, try to get something more than just a handshake, more than just, hey, a free shopping arrangement. Sometimes shopping arrangements can be good as long as they're not exclusive to the producer and where you have the autonomy to go out there and look for other deals. Um, and the other thing I will tell writers of all kinds, it doesn't matter, I don't care if you write poetry, I don't care if you're a songwriter, novelist, whatever. At some point, you have to stick to your guns. And by that, I mean, don't turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to notes. Doesn't mean you have to like them, doesn't mean you have to accept them. My problem when I first started writing, and I had a little bit of success early on, my head got too big for my skill set and my britches. And I thought that everything I was putting on page was the gospel. And that's not true. And, you know, you, you get your comeuppance really quick when 
you don't sell something uh, or when something tanks when you think it's brilliant. So don't, don't hold out to not look at notes, not be open to notes, not be open to changes. But at the end of the day, be a writer and stick to your original version of what you wrote to hold true to what you created and believe that you know your story better than anyone else. And the reason I say that, because every literary agent on the planet, and God love them, they have a job, I get it, but they're all going to have opinions. They're all going to tell you, oh, you need to change this character, you need to soften this character, you need to make this one this, or make this one that, or change this plot line, or do this. They all have opinions. And sadly, many agents and managers are failed or unsuccessful writers. They took a shot at it, didn't work. Maybe they're great idea people, but they're just not great at delivering the goods in the printed word. Um, that doesn't, you know, I'm, again, not disparaging them, but they're going to have opinions of what your work should be. And of course, then they're going to have opinions of what buyers are going to want. And guess what? Buyers, be it publishers, producers, studios, networks, they're all going to want something different too. Everybody's going to tell you something different. You can send the same script to five different people, and you will bound, you're bound to get five different responses, five different set of notes, five different pros and cons lists. So at some point, and I take it from someone who has rewritten the same script or the same manuscript multiple times only to have to either revert back to the original draft or get the same result, and that's either nothing or the same result that would happen, stick to your guns at some point. If there is a note that, is, that you believe in, that truly revamps your story, fixes a character, adds something different. Don't be so egocentric that you're not willing to put it in just to give that person their victory. Change it. Whatever note comes in that you believe in and that works and improves your script, hey, damn, take it. But if it doesn't work and it truly you feel it compromises your story or just doesn't work, move on to the next project. Try to sell whatever it is, but move on. Start writing something else. Don't spend year after year after year rewriting the same material based on other people's comments. And the other thing I'd say is get people who you know aren't going to tell you what you want to hear. They need to tell you what you need to hear. If you surround yourself in your writing with friends and family who, oh, my God, this is amazing, what's their frame of reference? If they've never read a script, they've never read the kind of novel you're writing or even a short story, if they don't have a frame of reference and for that specific subject, subject matter – you know, you're screwed. You're, you're getting, a, getting an opinion that's, that's going to be biased on the pro side and will not help you in terms of really unlocking it. So that's the only real, real advice I could give that. Um, also, never shoot dice in the basement of an Italian restaurant, uh, and don't ever play, um, play poker with anybody nicknamed after a power tool, I'd say. is important. What was the power tool? I feel like this is based on reality. Well, like you play with like Joey the Jackhammer or like, you know, Bobby the Vice or something like that. Bad, because chances are uh, they got that nickname somehow and they're, they're willing to show you. That, yeah, that's, that's uh, sound advice. Do, are you a, a proficient poker player or do you just kind of like to do it on the occasional for fun? I guess and you story? could call it on the circuit um, for a little bit. And I did pretty well financially. Felt very slimy, and I also was playing well outside my comfort zone. Um, I was sitting down with probably more money than I can afford to lose, um, and that wasn't really smart. But I got into it. I was really into it. And I'd like to think that I'm, uh, you know, poker is chess. 
it's the same as, you know, it's like a cage fight. The only difference is you're doing with cards and money and, you know, your wits and instincts. Um, a very At the time, he was a very good friend of mine named Jamie Gold. He won the World Series of Poker in 2006. He beat uh, 5,773 other players, the biggest field at the time, to win the biggest prize at the time, which was $12 million. And I was the only so-called journalist who defended Jamie. Jamie got very lucky in some situations, but he played brilliantly also. His table talk was genius. And they actually changed some of the rules in the World Series because of how he talked at the table and things he said and did. But um, Jamie, after Jamie won, I kind of, uh, I don't want to say shadowed him, but I went a few places. He went and played in some big events and uh, got into some different things. I won an event at the Bellagio, and I've had some good caches in other tournaments, but uh, I'm certainly not on the, the level that, um, you know, uh, Tom Dewan and Phil Ivey and people of that are. I had played with them, uh, sat in games with them, and they're, you know, I, I, I can outshoot them, but they'll outpoker me. <laughs> so, given that opportunity, if we could do one first, then the other, I'd say let's go to the range. So, you know, put some money on that, and then I'll sit down in a poker game with you. Or, you know, let's let's go across uh, five football fields away from each other and see who, you know, go from there. But other than that, yeah, I, I think I'm I think I'm decent. Um, but I also know my limitations, and I know my comfort zone now. So, and I think for any poker player, and if you read uh, either of my poker books, although one's just about crazy stories, um, the biggest thing is, you know, it's like that thing at a rounders. If you can't spot the sucker at the table, that's you. That's how I feel every time I play uh, poker. <laughs> I'm just like I'm clearly the weak link here. Wait, are you are you a player? Not at all. No, I've I've probably played I would say a dozen times in life, and every time I'm reminded of why I'm not great at it. <laughs> the only the only poker truism that I can give everybody out there: if you ever play poker with Toby McGuire from Spider Man, spit on him, throw something at him. He's a prick. So, <laughs> I'll to serve that up, and Toby, if you hear this and you don't like it. Too bad. Come find me. I'm easy to find. I think you're a dick. Ooh, I like it. We'll we'll add him. <laughs> we'll make sure he's, we hear. Yeah. He hears Would you this. like to yeah. know why? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. We're playing at the there's a poker tournament, the Bicycle Casino in L.A. It's called the Bike. Uh, it's in Bell Gardens, and they've recently redone it. Great poker area. And we're uh, I'm in uh, Toby's table at his table. And Vince Vaughn was there, too, that night. And I've never seen more women around the poker player in my life. Um, <laughs> that was the craziest thing I've ever seen. I, I Literally, he had him stacked 10, 10 deep to meet Vince Vaughn. But I was at uh, Toby's table, and we're on a break. And where the tournament area is, it's roped off. So if people want to walk by and kind of looky-loo or watch or whatever, there, there's an area they have to stay behind. So we were, I think we were four minutes away from cards in the air again, starting up again, and players had returned to their seats, and they're sitting there. And Toby was just sitting there, and I remember he's drinking his Fiji water, whatever, he's three seats away. And this woman reaches out from across the this little velvet rope, but she had to be, honestly, 80, 85, maybe 90, maybe she was even older. This little bitty thing, sweet little thing, she had on her little visor kind of thing, and she had an autograph book. She said, Mr. McGuire, you're my favorite actor. I love you. I've seen all your movies. Could you please sign my autograph book? And she had the book. She had the pen. She had the page open. She reached out. He said, lady, I'm on a break. He's like, I don't bother you. Don't bother me. And I'm like, this can't really be happening. I mean, it was literally like out of a movie. I was like, and everybody at the table is looking at him. 
and and then he gives us a look like what? It's like I'm just trying to chill and get in the zone to play. Like, dude, a fucking autograph. It's like, what's your problem? Get in the zone. So we needled him for the next. Once the game started back up again, we were needling him like crazy to the point that the floor man came over and actually said something to us about doing it. And we were we were respectful with our our verbiage. Um, we didn't we didn't curse or anything like that. But we were, I mean anything that happened, we were saying things and ribbing him and you know throwing other actors in his face and actresses and it got to the point and he finally just went all in on a on a crappy hand that got eliminated and <laughs> was happy to get out of here. But I could not believe he did that. I honestly I, I, I still can't believe I saw it and heard it. But I was literally right there as with everybody else and he was just he was just a dick. So thought it was a prick move. Well, there you have it. Yeah, if, if anyone, there you have it. If anyone out there is, is playing poker with Toby McGuire, or I guess just in general, I guess you don't have to be playing poker. It could be just general life. If they pass by him, they can they can give a few choice words. Anywhere, if you see him at line in a subway at a Chipotle in the finest restaurant in an airplane, if you're walking down the street, like I said, treat him accordingly. Um, I, I just thought that I don't understand why somebody like that who owes everything he has. Look, talented guy. Don't get me wrong. I think he's a brilliant actor. He's 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 awesome. Uh, nothing to say about his his craft of thespianism. Um, I don't even know if that's a word. But uh, <laughs> to, to do that to someone who was clearly you know enamored with him and and seeing him made her day to sign her book to take all of five seconds to do it. And this wasn't a woman who was going to sell the autograph on eBay. You know, this was not that kind of a thing. Um, I'm just shocked. And, and um, it was it was like that was one of those parts or one of those situations where, like, there's humanity, there's humans, and then there's this idiot. Um, and if I if I thought I wouldn't have gone to jail for just tagging him in the face right there, I'm, I would have considered it. Um, but I'm pretty sure he would have pressed charges. Yeah, I don't think that would have ended well for you. Good restraint, good restraint. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely not. And I wasn't the only person at the table. I mean, everybody at the table wanted to just tee this guy up. It was just, you know, there was even an older guy at the other end of the table who saw it it happen. He was like, I'll never watch one of your movies again. I don't wow. care. So. Well, let's, let's move from, from rudeness to, to more exciting stuff. I'm going to spring this on you. I know we talked about uh, some topics for top three, but your Tarantino story i made me made me want to hear some more i some more souvenirs that you've collected so i'd love to hear either from stories you've written hollywood moments whatever your top three souvenirs or mementos from your career okay um one is isn't a souvenir i could take with me although i could have but it's it's pretty cool um i was hired a number of years ago and i'm sure you know who steven seagal is Mm -hmm. i do i do okay martial arts are he was, you know, huge in the '80s and everything. Hard to kill. Um, done a done a number of movies. Big Six Four. Used to be married to Kelly to Kelly LeBrock until he beat her up. Whatever. But brilliant, um, brilliant uh, practitioner of martial arts. I was hired to do a, a book for Stephen. So they flew me to Scottsdale. And this is kind of a funky Hollywood story. Hollywood, Arizona, by way of Arizona. So I get to. Um, to Stephen's house in Scottsdale, and he's let in, and I won't go into all the details of everything, but he had a copy of a book that I had just written with Terry Shepard. Terry is a Green Beret, former A-team leader. He was a star of Dude, You're Screwed. He was big on Shark Week. 
who is also uh, he's done a number of things, but Terry's this big, crazy, tatted up looking Green Beret who is the sweetest, nicest, most gentle guy you'd ever meet. So don't let the fact that he can, you know, literally kill you a thousand ways from Tuesday uh, freak you out. But I did this funky, improvised uh, self-defense book with Terry. We wrote it tongue-in-cheek, teaching you how to defend yourself with anything you encounter, from a dirty diaper to a bag of dog poop to a drinking straw, a deck of playing cards, light bulb, you name it, it's in there. And it's, it's meant to be funny, but at least get you thinking and still be real if you're in a situation. So I'm sitting out at Steven Seagal's um, patio in Scottsdale, and he's out there, and he's, he's a big dude. Um, very intimidating, although you know, nobody scares me in this world. I've already been you know, shot and stabbed and everything, so that, that ship has sailed. So he pulls off this little folder thing, and there's a copy of my book that I did with Terry. And he said, so what's the deal with this book? This is garbage. And I'm looking at him, and I'm like, Mr. Seagal, I'm like, clearly a man of your skills doesn't need a self-defense manual. But for the mortal people among us and everybody else, I thought it was fun, and Terry's, you know, put a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan and he's been all over. So we did this fun book. He goes, yeah, well, I think it's junk at which he ripped it in half. He threw it in this huge cactus planter that he had. He stands up, he takes out his junk, he pees on it, <laughs> finishes, and then lifts up. I mean, this wet rip cover slash half a book and literally throws it at my feet. He goes, you can take that with you when you leave. So that was a souvenir I could have kept. Um, <laughs> I did not. Uh, I did not keep. Now I don't know if he was how serious he was being, or he was just trying to razz me. But I ended up writing a script with Stephen. So um, you know, it, I think it was it was kind of funny. But uh, okay, so that was one souvenir. Uh, I'm trying to think other Hollywood souvenirs. The cover um, of the script for Honor Thy Family that Quentin Tarantino. Uh, quoted of what I should do with my career and how poorly <laughs> it was written. Um, that's a good souvenir. I'm trying to think what else. Um, the memories of the Copelson thing, that was cool. Uh, what else? Um, I watched Jeff Speakman get knocked out in a club. That was a, another. It wasn't so much as a souvenir, although for the longest time, I don't know why, I, I kept the drink coaster um, from Cat and the Fiddle. That was kind of funky. Um, souvenirs, though trying to think souvenirs yeah I, I i was never a collector of, of things like that only if something was done to me but more memories sure. really just funny funny happenings funny instances i had a i don't know that this is a souvenir but back when um do you remember the movie true lies yes i do okay arnold schwarzenegger tom arnold stole the movie he was absolutely brilliant he was fantastic and after that movie uh, Tom Arnold was the toast of the town. Everybody and their brother was trying to look for a project for Tom. And I had just written this really over-the-top action script um, that good premise, nah, characters were a little wonky, but um, I, today I'd give it like a C plus. I'd give it an A for concept, C plus for execution. Um, so I wrote this script, and of all things, I got called in for a meeting with a producer on the Disney lot. Now, this was not a Disney script. There was in no way this would ever be a Disney script, and the only thing I could think of is the producer was going to be jumping ship and going somewhere else, and that's where he was. He was on the Disney lot at the time, but there was no way. And even the agent that was repping me at the time was a guy by the name of Tony Olashansky for Don Buckwald and Associates. It used to be Howard Stern's agency. Um, 
he said, Adam, I, I don't know why I'm sending you to this meeting, but you should go because you should take every meeting you can get. So, okay. So I go to this meeting and, you know, first, the first two, three minutes are effusive praise, like, hey, Adam, this is a great script and it's awesome. So right then and there, I know the guy's crazy because I know it wasn't a great script. <laughs> um, but I was appreciative. I was like, you know, thanking him a thousand times a second. And then he said, all right, so let's get real. We think this would be a great project for Tom Arnold. I'm like, okay, ding, ding. There's, and that's where we're going with this. Cool. He's like, but we have one stipulation. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to do it, whatever. Somebody telling me to write a script for an actor and they're going to buy it. <laughs> yep. Okay, where do I sign? It's like, do you have a problem making the lead character a cross-dresser? And the way he said it, it literally just hit me like, you know, bag of rocks in the face. I was like, okay, that came out of left field. I was like, do I want to make the lead character a cross-dresser? So I said, yes, of course. I mean, I'm happy to do it. Um, but uh, never went anywhere. But that was just, I thought that was kind of funny. That was just, uh, if you ever needed a true drop jaw moment where somebody throws a question at you or a statement that you are absolutely not ready for that was the one yeah that's uh did, well. did they explain why they just for for marketing appeal didn't say just said <laughs> they thought that's what it was that's what the story needed that's what they felt would be perfect for tom in this character and granted i had the to give you an idea the people at the time that i had written the script for um to give you an idea of the character, was it Bruce Willis? Was a Mel Gibson? I didn't see it for Tom Arnold for that kind of thing. I didn't see it as a cross-dresser. I didn't understand the reason for a cross-dresser. And I was afraid to ask. I just nodded go, hey, if that's what you want, no problem. I'm happy to do that rewrite is what I said. And then I got out and then I got to and all the way to the car. I'm walking. I'm like, well, what are we talking about here? What's going on? Not that I had any issue with it. I was like, hey, all good. Um, I just thought it was bizarre. It was one of the strangest um, asks or questions or statements that I had ever been uh, been in front of in, in any Hollywood meeting. I've had a lot of Hollywood meetings, so that was uh, that was an interesting one. Yeah, that's I. I'm just shaking my head over here. <laughs> yeah, it's same here, man. SMH. I had no clue. No clue. No idea. And if it's interesting, the producer, who I won't name, is no longer a producer. He's now designing luxury homes. So, hmm. I don't know. Maybe that says something. That could have been. Yeah, that could have been his uh, his swan song, maybe. His swan yeah. song. Yeah. Well, always, well, always um, fascinating, yeah. Any other real funky... Uh, I had a, a cool... I mean, I did a graphic novel in 2008 called Air Force. It was a pet project of Calvin Air. Um, the former head of Bodog, billionaire, uh, online sports book and multimedia mogul who had Bodog fight and Bodog music. He wanted to do like a cool Charlie's Angels type project only with him in the lead. Um, so I wrote the graphic novel and um, we found a fantastic illustrator in Sean Martinborough. And the, my co-writer on the project and editor was a guy by the name of Joe Illich who knows everything about the comic book industry. And they just did an open you know, blank check for the New York Comic Con, and they hired these models to be um, to wear tactical lingerie because Air Force was like Calvin Air's kind of, like I said, like his, his own personal Charlie's Angels tactical squad, and he was the leader. So we had all these models walking around New York Comic Con in Air Force livery kind of thing, and it was it was incredible with the Bodog colors and. Turned out, you know, we were a one-time, one-shot book, the only one that's ever done funky collector's items. That's a good, uh, 
that's a good souvenir, but that we were one of the hits of the New York Comic-Con of 2008. That was pretty cool. Um, no clue. Learned, learned a lot about the comic book industry that I did not know, um, and it was the most bizarre thing. But, yeah, that was a trial by fire. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> good deal. Well, I, th- I think that, I mean, I'll count it as three. I think we we got a couple bonuses in there, but I'll I mean I enjoyed all of them. I appreciate so that. I can't Thank complain. You. Yeah, and where I where can people find you? What are you doing next? Let's let's get some uh, some self promotion. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, well, obviously I'm out here in L.A. Although I'd I'd really love to move to San Diego, but I've got to be near the industry right now, or at least so they tell me these days. Truthfully, you really don't have to be. I mean, the cool thing is like this meeting. I uh, met with a guy by the name of Aaron Magnani today really cool guy that came out of the blue nice two-hour lunch to talk about projects uh what i'm working on right now i just had a script called the school which was a a pilot script based on uh, a series that takes place for think about the cia and everything you know about the cia so imagine if you could start the training of cia agents not after college not after they got out of langley um, wait, not Langley, uh, what do you call it? After Q school, they call it, or, you know, all that crazy stuff. Um, but when they were still in junior high and start their language training and their, their interrogation skills and their tactical training and all that stuff, when they were truly kids, it's kind of like Ender's Game meets Spycraft. So I wrote this script and it turned out to be a top 10 script in all of Hollywood out of, I don't know, 2,400 plus entries for a script pipeline competition that got the attention of, I don't know, 30, 40 different producers. So I'm getting some some nice comments. Some want to take meetings. Some said, well, you know, the Americans just ended. We don't want to do another spy show right now. There's a new show coming out on USA called Treadstone, which is kind of the in the Bourne series. Um, so some people think the, the market's right for it. I got a nice meeting with Netflix coming up. So I'm working on that. Um, trying to find a home for that. Obviously, my novel, The Death Dealer, uh, based on the article, based on you know the true story of when I went hunting with Jonathan Keith Idema for poachers uh, years ago, that just came out. The book came out in uh, August, the end of August, and I am starting to get some really interesting uh, calls about that. Um, turned down an offer the other day. It was very small, and I had a feeling it was just going to be a development hell for anybody who doesn't know development hell, that's where somebody um, either buys or options your script and it just sits on a shelf with a thousand other projects that will never get made, never get looked at, just collects dust until somebody wants it. And sometimes they do that just to take it off the market because they're developing something else that's similar. Um, I know Blumhouse, they're the people, they've done a lot of things. They had a show called The Hunt that they was supposed to be, had to go out and they pulled it after one of those uh, latest um mass shooting, which I understand, but unfortunately those things happen. So I'm, I'm working on uh, finding the right production company for The Death Dealer, um, and I started writing something new, which is really, really kind of funky. Um, it's If you like Sons of Anarchy and you like Navy SEALs, well, combine the two. <laughs> I am working on a biker group that are they're hardcore bikers, bikers first, but they're also a well-trained tack team. And I'm going to see what I can turn that into. I don't know if it's going to work. I'm about 50 pages into what's either going to be a really kick-ass pilot um, or I'm going to have to cut it back up and then turn it into a 90-page feature. But I think it will work as a series. And it could be really cool 
if you like motorcycles, you like action, you like hardcore stuff, and uh, the chick who's in it is she's the baddest of the bunch. So I'm I'm fun to uh, having fun exploring her character, and that's that's it. That's what I'm working on now, and uh, uh, playing with my dogs. And uh, my wife just rescued two kittens that were supposed to be fosters that are now members of the family, Aww. and I'm having their names inked in my arm next week. So that's what I'm up to. What are their names? You want to give them a shout out? Yeah, they're uh, they're Prescott and Petunia. They were two peas in a pod. They Aww. came from a very, very bad situation in San Bernardino. My wife found them. There were originally five kittens. Uh, two, we don't know, something weird happened to them. She went back to get the other three, and one had just been hit by a car. And like I said, they were in the situation they were in was horrible with fleas and worms and very unsafe and the people around them. Um, so she was able to, I mean, she had a, she put on these like pit bull gloves. She didn't know if they were going to scratch or bite and they were totally feral and freaked out. They're only eight weeks old and now they like sleep on us and curl and the whole thing. They're, they're amazing. So yeah, they, they went from, okay, we'll just foster them for a week until we find the right home for them to you ain't getting my cats. Too. <laughs> so, yep. So that's, so Prescott and Petunia, their names, I have a, one of my arms, one of my arms, as if I have many. But my <laughs> left arm is has all the names of uh, dogs and cats that are either still in my life or have gone on to uh, other places in the world. So their their names are going on uh, next week. Love it. My dog is a rescue as well, so always always appreciate the rescues. Good for you, man. That's awesome. Like I said, you can you can do anything you want to me. Say anything. Do anything. Challenge me with whatever. I don't care. You look crooked at my animals. You better have a nuclear weapon in your backyard because I will come after you. <laughs> I love it. And, and I, do, I do have nukes, so there we go. Yeah, so, so it's a real actually, threat. I, yeah. <laughs> I can hit you from a thousand yards, so no problem. And if people I want to find you, want to drop you a line, want to let you know that they uh, crossed paths with Toby McGuire and had their way with him that well that sounds dirty i got you know got oh, upset with him that. and yeah. please send me pictures uh <laughs> posterity is cool yeah absolutely thanks joey you can reach me at um my website is www.adamrock and that's rock with an e r o c k e dot com my email is adam at adamrock.com and uh yeah um i'm happy to uh happy to respond and i appreciate the feedback and i appreciate you taking time to do this and uh it's always great to connect with a fellow potter and uh you know you're awesome and i i wish you continued success with all your endeavors as well likewise and thank you this was a this was an hour but it felt like five minutes it was great i appreciate it It was uh it's always fun to connect with you man Absolutely. And of course, because I always like ending with a joke, maybe you'll appreciate this too. Uh, a limbo champion walks into a bar, immediately gets disqualified. Get after it today, people. I love it.